Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel live stream. It's a blessing to share the Word of God with you today. We'll be in the book of Luke, chapter 9, if you want to turn in your Bibles there. How good it is to, to have such a wonderful Savior, a great God who calls us, who desires to, to reveal Himself to us and to um, draw us to Himself by His grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this beautiful day. Thank you for your, your mercies that are new every morning. Thank you for the sun that shines and the birds that sing, for your love for us, for Jesus Christ and all that he means to us. And I pray, Lord, that as important as we see him, we would exalt and magnify him even more, that you would put in our hearts a greater love for you, greater devotion and service uh, with great joy, knowing that you are worthy to be followed. You are worthy to be praised. And Lord, fill our hearts with your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. In his life, Jesus demonstrated total commitment to God, uh, doing the Father's will. It's like every word, every deed, every step was filled with purpose. Jesus did the Father's work, but he was always at rest. The world was in turmoil around him. There were troubles on every side, and yet he continued to look to God. It didn't matter if the sea was storming. He uh, was able to bring peace and calm. And as his life was drawing to an end, as his steps led him towards Jerusalem and his crucifixion, um, he knew his hour was approaching. No one even knew really what that meant. And he advanced without fear of suffering or rejection, betrayal, and death on the cross for the sins of the world. He, he soldiered on. He knew why he came to the planet to save sinners. He knew that he would demonstrate the love of God, that he came to bear witness to the truth, to destroy the works of the devil. He was going to accomplish so much on Calvary. And it's like a runner with his head so when you're running a race, your eyes are looking ahead. You're looking on at the finish line, making sure you stay in your lane. That's how you're going to reach the end. Uh, and so Jesus says he set his face like a flint to follow the will of God. So Luke 9.51 is where we'll begin. And I think in all the messages we've had, this may be the most confronting, the most personal. It goes right to the heart of Christianity, and it shows us our tendency as followers of Jesus to get things wrong, to misunderstand what even the scriptures and what we're called to do, and miss what God desires of us. I say this as a sinner who deserves to go to hell. I don't say it to you as someone who is in a position of having accomplished or achieved anything, that I am anything of myself. Two, two degrees, we all, since coming to Christ, have made, uh, we've been, become aware of sins in our lives, and we have grown, and we have changed, and God has done a miraculous work in all of us, one that he is going to continue to see fulfilled. And though he has done so much in us, there is a lot of work yet to do. And uh, the renovation of our lives, it kind of reminds me of a house. Like when God opens your eyes to see your sin and your need for change, we used to, you, you walk into your, if your life was like a house and you walked in there, at first glance, everything looks pretty good. And you like the idea of a fresh coat of paint to, to liven up the room. And, but then you realize that there's some rot and the timber needs to go that it's actually going to involve a lot of work and it's going to impact your life. And, and so we shrink from the task. We procrastinate because 
making these changes in our lives is going to fundamentally change us and change the things that we do. And embracing the sanctification is something God calls us to do. And it's not going to be convenient. It's going to be costly. It's going to be time-consuming. It's going to cost you your life. But there's nothing more rewarding than following Jesus. As a faithful follower, we're the ones that need to be the first to change, who quit making excuses for our sin, who quit pointing fingers at others, who humble ourselves before God in obedience. Because if you're looking for hypocrisy, you're looking for faults, man, it's easy to find in fallen people. But may God open our eyes to see our need for change and transformation, that we would know what spirit we are of, because Jesus has saved us. And he, we follow his example. So Luke 9, 51, it says, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. For the joy that was set before Jesus, he went to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. And he had his face set for the journey. It's kind of like concrete when it's set. You can write your name in it. You can put your handprints, your footprints in it. They're going to be set that way permanently until that concrete's broken up. You have a, a memorial of that dog that ran across that wet concrete. Uh, Jesus' face was set. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. Jesus would not be deterred from this divine appointment God set for him. We read of it in Isaiah 50, starting in verse 5, that says, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I will not be ashamed. Flint is a microcrystalline quartz. It's highly resistant to weathering. Jesus knew he would be rejected by men, that he would die by crucifixion, that he would rise the third day and be received up into heaven. And I love the fact that Luke points out Jesus wasn't looking at the pain. He wasn't looking at the rejection. He was looking through the cross beyond it and saying, I am looking to be received up. So it was about being received up. That was his focus. The thing that is going to endure. Pain, shame, that's temporary. That's passing away. The injustice of bearing the sins of the world, that would be redeemed through his atoning blood. So at the onset of this journey, as he's heading towards Jerusalem, he sends some messengers ahead of him. Now we're not told precisely which Samaritan village this was. The woman that had met Jesus at the well, that was in Samaria. And the woman was very surprised that Jesus even spoke to her because the Jews have no dealings, had no dealings with the Samaritans. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as Gentiles because of their mixed ancestry, how they had been mixed with the Assyrian people. They had been ruled that Northern Kingdom area a while by Persia. And the woman brought up with Jesus a point of great controversy whether the temple at Jerusalem was the right place to worship or the temple on Mount Gerizim. The Jews insisted that it was in Jerusalem. 
where God had put his name, where you had to offer sacrifices and appear before the Lord and you would bring your offerings that were offered by sanctified priests. The Samaritans, though, they had their own scriptures. They, took a, they had a Samaritan version of the Torah that they, um, so the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible in their own language. And uh, kind of like the Samaritans, they were like the Northern Kingdom in that they did their own thing. They had their own time for the Passover and they, they did not go to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts. And so there was this rivalry between them. They had their temple and the, the Jews had their temple and it was a hostile and uh, volatile, uh, like racial and, and religious tensions between the people. And they couldn't quite get over it. Um, we see that the Jews, some of them that were not believing, of course, they ins- tried to insult Jesus by saying he was a Samaritan or he was demon-possessed. So it was clear that there was no love lost between them. But Jesus, he's gracious. He sends messengers before him, before the Samaritan town, to notify them that he's coming. Um, Maybe that plan of Jesus having his face set to go to Jerusalem, it opened old wounds and the people declined to host him and his followers. So Luke 9, verse 54. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Yeah, the irony is, is that Jesus had been, had shown his disciples, they were arguing about who is the greatest He gets this little child, sits in the midst and says, whoever receives this little child in my name receives him who sent me. He receives me and those who send me. And then Jesus had been rejected or refused where they had not received him. And they're like, should we call down fire from heaven to consume them like Elijah did? James and John, they saw the glory of Jesus on the mount. They were convinced he was the son of God. And so the reaction is somewhat commendable, except they were dead wrong about the heart in which they were doing it. But they called Jesus Lord, which is good. They sought his counsel, so they asked him what they should do. Uh, They believed that Jesus was God, that he had the power to bring down fire from heaven, and they even used scripture to support their actions. We'll see Jesus rebukes them. But let's go to that passage in 2 Kings verse 1. Uh, The background is that King Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, he had a terrible fall and sustained injuries. And so he had sent to inquire of Beelzebub of Ekron whether he would recover. But God, knowing this, prompted Elijah the prophet to intercept those messengers and to ask them a question. And he said, is it because there is not a God in Israel that you go to inquire of Beelzebub of Ekron? Uh, Thus says the Lord, you shall not rise from your bed, but surely die. The words are reported to King Ahaziah and, uh, and based upon the description, he's like, what did he look like? He's like, he was a hairy guy wearing a leather belt. And they go, oh, that's got to be Elijah the Tishbite. Go arrest that guy. And this is what happened in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 9. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50 men. So he went up to him and there he was sitting on top of a hill. And he spoke to him, man of God, the king has said, come down. 
So Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Then he sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50 men. And he answered and said to him, man of God, thus has the king said, come down quickly. So Elijah answered and said to them, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Elijah sitting on top of this hill. It should have reminded Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, of God's miraculous victory over the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel when Elijah called down fire from heaven, which consumed the sacrifice. And everyone said, the Lord, he is God. Since there was and there is a God in Israel, because Elijah was a man of God with fire coming down from heaven, Ahaziah and the people of Israel ought to sought to have sought God. They should have sought after him. They should have submitted to his rule. And so the king sends these men to arrest uh, Elijah and says, the king says, come down. And Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven. And it did twice. And the king stubbornly sent a third detachment, a third 50. And the third one came a bit differently. It says he fell on his face and says, please, be merciful to us. Let our lives be precious in your sight. And those, the angel Lord spoke to Elijah, says, don't be afraid, go with them. And he did. He, did, he went to King Ahaziah and he delivered the same message. And what God said certainly came to pass. So when James and John suggested like, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven? Jesus turned and rebuked them. And he says, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of in their zeal for Christ, likely for their own honor as well, they mistakenly thought that God would approve of destroying Samaritans rather than saving them, that they needed a heavy-handed lesson of God's judgment rather than his grace and love. God prepared the way for the law with the miraculous plagues that destroyed Egypt. Jesus paved the way for the gospel with miraculous healings, with forgiveness, with love and mercy. Do you realize that walking in love towards your enemies is just as miraculous as calling down fire from heaven to consume them? I mean, that's the power of God. I think about superheroes, right? They have the power to, uh, you know, x-ray vision and super strength and they can fly and they, they all like to fight for some reason. You know, they're going to fight against evil. They're going to win. Um, and they have all these different superpowers that, powers that are largely destructive. But love from God, that's the Christian superpower. That's what seeks the good of God and others above all else. Jesus came to save lives by laying down his own. To destroy Samaritans with fire from heaven was contrary to the purpose for which Jesus had sent and contrary to the spirit that moved him. It says, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. James and John, these guys had followed Jesus for years. They saw his glory on the mountain, but they didn't realize what spirit they were of. They needed to be rebuked for their foolishness. And what they thought, when they thought they were doing the right things by the book. So believer, have you done the equivalent of calling down fire from heaven upon those who reject Christ or who reject or refuse you? Do you wish ill upon other believers you judge 
to be worshiping or living in the wrong way. And I confess, at times I have miserably failed to know what spirit I am of in my zeal to try to, to honor God and to do what's right. I thought when I was working with youth, I thought it was my job uh, to, to kind of make boys into men by a harsh word or by the silent treatment. But God rebuked me. He said, can you make a man? You teaching them this lesson. You know, you're going to teach them. Can you make them? And I was like, no. Okay, <laughs> well... You need to follow the Holy Spirit and walk in my ways. It's like, is, do you think it's your job to keep people humble? Is that your role? To cut them down to size in accordance with tall poppy syndrome? God put Job and all men to the test who think they can do this in Job 40 verse 11. We read this this week and it's too good not to add. Uh, God, God is speaking to anyone who thinks he measures up to God. He says, disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wickedness in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. So here's my paraphrase. It's the day when you can recognize the proud and humble him is the day that you can save yourself from hell. Like, well, I can't do that, obviously. We, we think we can see pride in other people, but we don't even see it in ourselves. God is the one who humbles men. He's the one who reveals these things by his grace. It's a miracle that our eyes have been opened. When we were blind, we were like that man born blind that Jesus has spoken to. He's touched and we can now see. And having seen, we see problems we didn't see before and we think it falls to us to, to do it with heavy-handed, heavy-handed uh, judgments. God is powerful to save. He humbles men. We are called to humble ourselves, not others. Jesus set like, his face like a flint to show love towards all so that they could be saved. That's why he came. It's good to keep this in mind. Luke 9, 57. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. As Jesus and his disciples were going to the next village, someone said to the Lord, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And it's good that the man saw Jesus as Lord, that he's worthy of following. But a problem emerges when he says, I will, Lord, I will. In the book of James, he wote that we ought to say, if God wills, we will live and do this or that. So this man, he's making a promise he cannot keep. He's making a promise without knowing the facts of what Jesus, where Jesus is going. Because that was the last place people expected Jesus to be going, is to his execution on a cross on Calvary. Jesus told them many times that that's what would happen and that's what he, where he was going. But people did not understand or they didn't believe that. And Jesus says, foxes have olds and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus did not call a place on earth home. This man pledged himself to Christ. Time would prove if his words were true or not, if they were just hot air. And Jesus gave no promise of health or wealth or prosperity if he followed Christ. Jesus said that in this world, we will have tribulation. It will be difficult. Times will be hard. 
But consider the words of Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verses 1 through 3. He says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Soldiers don't have it easy. They're separated from family and friends. They, they don't make, I don't think, what people consider the big bucks. They, they serve willingly, and they, they give their lives, years of their lives, in service to their country and their fellow countrymen. They are to be commended. But it's kind of like this guy enjoyed the food from the restaurant and thought it would be fun to work in the kitchen. But, you know, a commercial kitchen is a hot, stressful, and cutthroat place. It's a very different view from inside the kitchen than sitting down at your nice uh, meal. No servant gets to decide what he is going to do for God, what he will do. Otherwise, God is not his master. He says, Lord, I will. That, that sounds like almost the devil. The devil said, I will ascend into the heavens. I will be as the most high. It was very focused on what he would do. Over the years, especially when I worked in children's ministry, I had people that would pledge themselves to serve, and they, uh, they would get, they just, I, I'd never seen them before, but they offered to give themselves in service to the kids and to the Lord. Uh, but when the task I gave them did not mesh up with what they thought, what their expectations were, I never saw them again. And I believe the most faithful workers are not those who say what they will do, but simply those who do it faithfully as unto the Lord, because they're empowered by him. These are the ones who are going to endure hardship for Christ like a good soldier. God doesn't need us, but he delights to save us and minister in and through each one of us, through you. God wants to do a great work in you. God wants to do a miraculous work. Rejoice in him. Luke 9, 59. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. The first one volunteers to follow Jesus wherever he goes. The second, Jesus says to another, follow me. And Jesus called many of his apostles in quite the same way. Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head, so therefore it would, it would take some faith to follow Jesus wherever he went because he wasn't leading them to a five-star hotel somewhere. He, uh, he didn't know where he was going to go. It's an uncertain future as far as the world sees, but our certainty, our security is, is to be in Christ. So the man, he, he jumped at the privilege to follow the Son of God, right? No, he didn't. He he calls Jesus Lord, but he excuses himself for following Christ. He straight up refuses on account of his responsibility to his dad, his aging father. It's highly unlikely his father was already dead. We know it was the practice of the Jews to bury very swiftly after death. There would be a period of mourning and grieving. This man was not grieving. He was walking with Jesus and Jesus called him. Perhaps he had his eye on the inheritance or the legacy that would be left him. He hoped to secure his future. And it is biblical to love and honor and care for your father and your mother in their old age. And it's, it's wise to be a good steward of the finances God gives us. So those things are not bad in themselves. But who's 
talking. It's Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus does not ask him a question. He doesn't say, would you like to follow me today? He says, follow me. Was Jesus aware the man had a father? Of course, Jesus gave him that son. I mean, he knew his father. Would Jesus command the man to follow him that day if it was a sin? No, of course not. The man allowed his supposed responsibilities to family to stand in the way of God who gave him a family. Jesus was not in the least bit callous to say, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God because the spiritually dead are physically capable to bury the dead. Jesus had called him to preach the kingdom of God. Jesus had a calling upon his life to teach, to share the word. And how lame those examples, how lame those excuses sound when it's God calling him, God commanding him. And he says, Lord, but first let me. Matthew Henry, he writes in his commentary, if the nearest and dearest relation we have in this world stand in our way to keep us from Christ... It is necessary that we have zeal that will make us forget father and mother. No excuses must be emitted against a present obedience to the call of Christ. If Christ is that man's Lord or was that man's Lord, he would come to his senses. He would repent and do what Jesus had commanding, commanded him to do. I've known many people who, in the zeal of their youth, believe that God was calling them to a ministry, calling them to take the gospel into poor places in the world or uh, go to the far reaches of the globe with the gospel. And the sense of the call was so urgent and the need was great and the door was open, but they balked on the lack of their professional training. And so they chose to enroll in a seminary. And it seemed like in some cases, the fire and drive that they once had, because of their, uh, it was like reasoned right out of them. Because they did not say yes to that call um, and obey Christ at that time, they lost all, I guess, drive for ministry to serve the Lord. Now understand, I'm fully supportive of seminary, university, education for pastoral and lay people. I think it'd be wonderful for all people to gain knowledge of God's word and to grow in that. And if God calls you to study at a Bible institute, glory to him. I pray he does. But don't let your lack of professional ability or your family situation or your work situation keep you from answering this call to follow Jesus Christ in whatever he tells you to do. Elisha, he was called while he was plowing. Amos, he was called as he followed the flock. These are guys just going along with their business. They feared God, they loved God, but they were workers in the field and God called them to a totally different ministry. James and John, they're mending the nets with their dad in the family boat. Matthew, he's called by Jesus on the clock uh, as a tax officer. Dr. Saul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, he's on his way to Damascus with important documents in his hand when Jesus arrests him on the road and he follows him. If you're waiting until you're married, if you're waiting until you have kids or your kids are grown or until your career is over or until you have so much money or until dad is dead and buried, the day is going to come when the preaching of God is going to matter very little to you because you said no to Jesus. You said no to him. 
And you had excuses, you had reasons, but they weren't good enough because Jesus is God. And he calls to you and he says, follow me. And it may be a call to leave something as much as it is to do something, but Jesus will let you know what that is. And it means denying yourself and taking up your cross and following him. To follow Jesus is not to divorce yourself from the love of your family. It's to grow in love for your family. But our allegiance, it needs to be holy to our Savior who desires to save our souls and minister in and through us. It is costly to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow Jesus. But there's no one more rewarding than God who created you and designed you and has plans for you beyond your imagination. Luke 9, 61. And also another said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Another person Jesus called eventually pledged to follow him, asked to be given permission first to, to farewell those people who were at home in his house, which I think was an interesting thing to think about. But, uh, and it really has biblical precedent. We see Elisha did this when Elijah came by. Uh, Elisha's plowing and um, Elijah cast his mantle upon Elisha. And a mantle would be your outer covering. And it was a sign that his authority and his uh, office as a prophet would pass to Elisha. And we can read of this in 1 Kings 19 verse 20. Um, it says, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, please let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. He says, can I go kiss my mother and father goodbye? And he says, hey, I'm not stopping you. We see his commitment though, don't we? He cut up the wood that was the plow that he was working with and he barbecued the cattle that he had been using, really his fallback plan, his money, and he left his inheritance. So he fed the people, kissed his parents goodbye, left his inheritance, and he served Elijah. So there was, a, there was commitment. And Elijah didn't give him any promises. He just threw his jacket on him. And he's like, all right, I'm there. I'm your man. And so there's nothing wrong with farewelling your family, with showing love for those around you, those who are at home in your house. But Jesus is cautioning the man to avoid looking back with longing to people at home in his house, to having this divided allegiance where instead of looking to Jesus, you're looking to your parents. Instead of looking to Christ for directives, you're looking for your opinions of your neighbors and your friends. Well-meaning meaning people, like the wife, uh, excuse me, the mother of uh, Isabel Kuhn, a Canadian missionary, she really opposed her daughter's um, missionary work. And she said, you're going over my dead body. She was very adamant. She was a Christian woman, but adamant that her daughter was not going to live on the donations of other people. Lot's wife, it says she disobeyed by looking back to Sodom and became a pillar of salt. And Jesus says in Luke 17, 32, he remember Lot's wife, what happened? She's the one who looked back. 
she looked back on what was going to be destroyed and was destroyed herself. Luke 17, 32. Oh, excuse me, I've already said that. Jesus said, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. If you are plowing a furrow, if you want it to be straight and in a line, you need to look where you're going. It's kind of like when you're driving, right? If you've ever been driving and something catches your eye and, and your, your sight lingers on it, maybe a little too long. And when your eyes come back to the road, you realize you've drifted out of your lane a little bit. Whoa, I mean, that's how serious accidents occur, that negligence. And uh, traffic violations like that, swerving out of your lane, hitting an oncoming car, causing a fatality, it, it causes you to lose your license because you're deemed unfit to drive. Jesus says that backward glance, looking back with longing, with that divided allegiance, it causes such to be unfit for the kingdom of God. Driving is a privilege, but how much greater is the privilege of serving Jesus Christ, following him, having a place for you in the kingdom of God to serve and to live forever? Because Jesus is more important than family or friends. The gospel is more important and Following Jesus will not um, lead to us loving others less. In fact, it's loving them more. The fact, the problem is for me and for many of us, we love ourselves too much. We love our own comforts too much. It's really not about your father or your mother. It's really you and God, and we will use a good thing to make an excuse rather than obedience to Jesus. So a farmer, if he plows to prepare for planting, he, he plows because he believes he's going to receive a harvest in due time. The plowman may not live to see the grain grow and the harvest reaped. And when we put our hands to the plow for Jesus' sake, we don't do it for ourselves, we do it for the Lord. We may never see the results of the good word going out and falling on uh, fertile ground in hearts where people respond to the word of God. We may not see it. But it's not for us to see, it's for God to receive the fruit and the glory. The words that God spoke to Israel in Hosea 10, 12, it's fitting for us to take to heart. It says, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. We cannot change the hearts of other people. We can't change other people's minds, but God wants us to change. He wants to do a transformational work in you that you should value more than the work he could do through you. And God called me on this this week. He said, what impresses you more? The work that I do in you, the work that I do in people, or the work that I do through people? And straight away, I knew the answer. I'm like, Lord, it's true. I think I've been valuing the work you do through people more than the work you do in a person. I can be more impressed by fire coming down from heaven or a demon being cast out or miraculous healing rather than those eyes that were once governed by lust now turn to God in purity or cursing, cursing that was in the heart, turning into blessing. Or someone choosing to love and pray for their enemies that they previously hated and were bitter against. See, that is the miracle that we must value, that God wants to do in you. 
He wants to change you. He wants to work this wonder that you can be born again, that you can know God and you can serve God through Jesus Christ. Today, Jesus calls you to follow him. He had no place to lay his head, but he bids you to trust him, to follow him, and find rest for your souls. He calls you, though you have responsibilities and you have careers and obligations, they may tempt you to excuse yourself from following him, to be preaching the word of God in in word and deed. And he says, follow me. Put your hand to the plow without looking back, without and I think Paul gives us a great example of this. He, he did not look back upon his successes and was filled with pride, nor did he look back upon his failures and feel bitterness or resentment or, or depressed by that. The one who has a habit of looking back is likely to go back. Your house, your friends, your family, your career, your stuff, your plans, they're infinitely less important than Christ who commands his servants to follow. And Paul, towards the end of his life, he wrote this in Philippians 3 verse 13. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul admitted, I have not arrived at my destination. I, am, I have fallen far short of perfection. I am the chief of sinners. But he didn't focus on the, the past. He pressed on with Christ in his view. He knew he had a lot to work on still. There, was, there were things that God was working in his life. But like a runner of a race whose eye is fixed on the finish line, making sure he is running in the right direction and he's staying in the, the lane so he's not disqualified, he wanted to finish strong. And all you who follow Jesus, I encourage you, I exhort you, finish strong. And you can't finish strong unless your eyes are on Jesus, unless you follow him. God did a work within Paul. God would be faithful to complete And may our urgency be in like that final stretch. You've you've watched a race, right? How the runners, they run, run, they're totally tired. But that last few meters, they lunge forward to to score, to to get the best time they can. And for all of us, there's there's this upward call that Jesus has called us to. And it's for us to be leaning out as if today is your last day, as if your race is almost over, to keep your eyes on Jesus and to follow him who looked forward to being received up. Do you look forward to being received up? Jesus calls you to follow him. Let's do that. Your life, my life will be the answer. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you do call us to follow you, that you are faithful to complete the work that you've begun in each one. And I pray, Father, that you would show us how to follow you. If there are sins or weights that are hindering us from following you, that we would lay those aside. And we praise you for the transformational work that you do inside a person, how you change our hearts and you change our minds. And you put love where there was once hate and resentment. And you put grace where there was once a judgmental and bitter attitude. Father, I pray that you would just quicken us by your spirit to put our hand at the plow, to not look back, to not say, Lord, I will, but to the Lord say, if you will. 
Thank you that you are good. You are trustworthy and you are righteous. You are king and God and we worship you. And we thank you again for your word. We thank you for this time to come aside and sit at your feet. And Lord, continue to teach us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.